Our next lesson is uh, continuing through Judges chapter 6 through 8, examining the life of Gideon with a view toward what perhaps we can learn from his life and times that might inform us as God's people in our own day. So today's lesson is from the seventh chapter of Judges, uh, reading verses 1 through 23. I hope you have your own Bible with you and you can mark in it. Uh, I told you how to outline every story in the book of Judges. If you can remember five S's, you can pretty much know what's coming next. If you weren't here when I explained that, see me later and I'll explain it to you. Uh, but this is uh, Judges. We're in the seventh book of the Old Testament. We're in the seventh chapter of that book. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take credit from me, saying, My own hand has delivered me. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. 22,000 returned, 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. When I say, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, All of those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. And all those who drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to one side. The number of those who lapped was 300. But all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 that lapped, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all others go to their homes. So he took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but remained, there, there remained the 300. The camp of Midian was below them in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Get up, attack the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you still fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and you shall hear what they say, and afterwards... Your hands shall be strengthened to attack the camp. Then he went down with his servant Purah to the outpost of the armed men that were in the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley as thick as locusts. And their camels were without number. I told you earlier, this is the first time in recorded history that camels are used in warfare. But they terrified the Israelites. They're as countless as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, I had a dream. And in this, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down. And the tent collapsed. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has given Midian and all the army. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Get up, for the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. After he divided the 300 men into three companies 
and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. He said to them, look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place all around the camp. And all the men in the camp ran. They cried and they fled. They blew the 300 trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerirah. As far as the border of Abal-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this brief series of four sermons, we are investigating the life and times of Gideon, trying to discern what we can understand about ourselves and our times in light of these ancient stories and that what they may be telling us about how God can better use us as his people in the challenges of our own day. We started off looking at just the call of Gideon. He couldn't believe it when the angel appeared to him and announced that uh, the Lord was with him, called him a mighty warrior. Gideon had a hard time accepting the angel's estimate of who and what he was. And in time, he came to understand that um, what mattered most was not the man he saw in the mirror, but the man that God had called him to be. And ultimately, he would get up and go about his mission. The next week, we looked at the fleece test. Gideon is always having questions and struggles trying to believe that God is going to deliver Israel through his hand. Because he comes from the smallest clan in Israel. His family's the weakest clan in that clan, and he's the run of the litter, as Eugene Peterson refers to him in the message but nonetheless God doesn't call those who are equipped he equips those who are called and so Gideon is being called and God will equip him to do what he needs to do to deliver Israel today we come to another exciting exploit and this is the actual defeat of the Midianite army by a band of 300 soldiers he starts out with 32,000 recruits and he whittles it down to some 300, and we're going to look at this and how he goes about it. Um, uh, Gideon's always been a heroic and epic figure, uh, but if we're going to, learn, going to learn anything from this story, we have to recognize that it's more than just an ancient epic tale of one man's heroism and how God used him. Uses, used him. It applies to us. Because you and I, as people of faith, as the church of Jesus Christ, are called to be the liberators of people in our own day. Liberating people from the shackles that, in which they are held in bondage. Shackles of sin, shackles of uh, illness, of ignorance, of poverty. All the shackles that bind God's children today. And we, as people of God, are called to address those and be the liberators of others to the very best of our 
ability. We have been commissioned to do this, as a matter of fact. Called to service and commissioned to take the gospel and the results of the gospel into all the world. So we too have an interest in liberating people from whatever dehumanizes them, whatever demeans them. That's our calling. That has not changed. And we think of all the things that hold people in bondage today, their own sinfulness or stupidity, their their own lack of education, their own lack of health care and wholeness. The Christian church is no less an army today than the people of Israel were in the days of Gideon so long ago. Now I know we've removed from our liturgy and our hymns a lot of the military imagery that is in the church. Uh, I think many people have felt that in an effort to draw attention away from the violence of our times, we simply won't talk about uh, ourselves as a military band. And yet we can't avoid that assessment if we read the Gospels and the New Testament seriously. Paul writes to the Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil because our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In his wonderful book, I don't know if any of you have read it, it's probably out of print now, written by the Quaker theologian Elton Trueblood, The Company of the Committed. I think that book has influenced me more than any book I've read in the last five or ten years. But it was written nearly 50 years ago, 1961. And this is part of what Elton Trueblood says in that book. One of the most surprising facts about the early church was its fundamental similarity to a military band. This is hard for us to recognize today because the ordinary successful church of the 20th century is about as different from an army as anything we could imagine. Instead of being under anything resembling military discipline, we pride ourselves on our freedom. We go and come as we like, as no soldier can do. We give or withhold our giving as we like. We serve when we get around to it. Obedience is considered an irrelevant notion. And the theme of onward Christian soldiers is so alien to our experience that some churches avoid the hymn entirely. A few avoid it on the mistaken assumption that it glorified killing, which of course it does not. The military metaphor seems strained when it is applied to smartly dressed women and men riding in air-conditioned cars to sit in air-conditioned churches. Later he adds this. The idea of the church as a military company was by no means strange to the early Christians. Indeed, military language can be found in various parts of the New Testament. It need hardly be said that this language had no reference or reference, uh, relevance to killing or preparing for destruction, but rather to a mood of men and women whose responsibilities were as demanding as those of enlisted persons. Thus, it seems wholly natural to read of Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. 
or of a good soldier in Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Timothy, or of Archippus, our fellow soldier in Philemon 2, or of the whole army of God in Ephesians uh, 6, 11, that I referred to a moment ago. It is perfectly clear that the early Christians considered Christ their commander-in-chief, that they were a company of danger, which involved demands upon their lives, and that to be a Christian was to be engaged in Christ's service. To be sure, we as followers of Jesus Christ have been given a dangerous and demanding and daunting mission to carry the gospel into all the worlds, which starts out in your own home, in your own heart, in your own neighborhood and workplace. And we may think this is too great a calling. How in the world could we be effective in reaching all people, even those around us? It seems that the odds are against us, right? Here is where the story of Gideon and his army of 300 can prove so insightful and so inspirational and so revelatory. This ancient story that dates from more than 3,000 years ago reminds us of some of the traits we must possess as the people of God if you and I would function as liberators in our day. To begin with, as God's people of liberation, we must realize whose we are and whose battle this is in which we are engaged. After Gideon rounded up his 32,000 recruits, the Lord says to him, the troops you have are too many for me to give them victory over the Midianites. Israel would only take the credit away from me, saying, by my own hand have I been de delivered. You see, the critically important thing that Israel needed to learn was not that just that she needed deliverance from the Midianites, but that rather only the Lord could deliver her. And also, it wasn't mere redemption that she needed, but a knowledge of her Redeemer. That was primary. How well the Lord knew the human heart. If Gideon had gone up against 135,000 Midianites, even with 32,000, they might have, if they were successful, they might have concluded that it was our own strength and cunning and power that enabled us to defeat this much larger band. And they could have ended up, ended up farther away from God than they were before if they credited their victory to themselves. It was essential, therefore, that Gideon and his fellow recruits recognize that the battle they were waging was God's battle, first and foremost, and that they were simply instruments in the hand of God to be used for God's purposes. Is there not a message for you and me and from this, for this congregation and for the people of God today in this? We're called to be instruments of God, liberating others like we've been liberated. The mission of the church is God's mission. It's not ours. We're waging a war as well to redeem and to reclaim those children of God who are out of relationship with him or with others. You and I are but recruits in the Lord's army, but ultimately the battle depends upon God and not upon us. And that can be a great source of good news because if it depends on God, it doesn't depend upon our successes. It won't be destroyed because of our failures. It's God's world. It's God's church. 
And the Lord is sovereign in both and will, in time, accomplish his, accomplish his purposes for the church and for all humanity. I was visiting uh, this past few days with one of our older members who asked me, what do you really think about the future of our church or about the future of the church? Because I've given you some rather distressing statistics in recent months. He said, do you think we can turn things around? I said, well, if I look only at the data, no, I don't. It's very discouraging. But if I keep in mind this is God's church, that God is in charge, then the numbers don't really matter, do they? The odds are not against us if God is on our side. If this is God's work, then God will bring it about. In addition, if we recognize that it is God's battle and we are but recruits for the battle, we will less likely despair over the smallness of our numbers, over our lack of native gifts or abilities. Who could possibly have thought that a band of 300 could defeat an army of 135,000? But when they spread out without a weapon in their hand, they only had torches and trumpets or shofars. If you've ever heard a, a shofar blown, you just imagine 300 of them descending down the mountains on the side of you. And when they did that, the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people in the east started panicking. Pandemonium broke out. They started killing one another. So much so that when they had finally fled, only 15,000 of them remained behind. Yes, indeed. Who could have imagined that an army of 300 could defeat 135,000? And yet they did. They did. And if our end, that is to say our purpose, our goal, is to honor and serve God, then the odds are not against us. If God is with us, we are a majority. Whatever our numbers may be. Size is of no consequence. Whether we're a band of 300 or a band of something less than 3,000 in this church, we can have a profound impact on the world around us and especially upon the community around us. So first and foremost, if we're going to be a liberating army of God's people, we have to realize and remind ourselves often that this is God's work, God's battle. And we are but instruments in the hand of the Lord. Secondly, we might notice that when the Lord began reducing the size of Gideon's army, he placed a high premium on courage. He instructed Gideon saying, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. 20,000, 22,000 of the 32,000 turned around and went home. When they were given the opportunity. Now I suppose we ought to commend the 22,000 for their candor if not their courage. Nonetheless we need to recognize that apart from some display of courage. On the part of the church on the part of each of us. We will not be in a position to impact society or to transform the lives of those around us. It is incumbent upon us to show courage, to be willing to take risk when necessary, to become vulnerable, to lay our prestige, our popularity, our power, our very lives on the line 
when called to do so. There comes a time, I think, in the life of every individual and in the life of every church when great courage is required of them. Because if we say yes to God, then of necessity we may and must say no to the world around us at times. If there are divine truths to which we are committed, then there are also demonic practices and policies that we must reject. To be a responsible steward in an age of materialism, to be a peacemaker in a time of alienation, to be a defender of the poor, a protector of the weak, to speak the truth to powers entrenched, to stand for what is right even in a losing cause is not something for the faint-hearted. That requires courage that comes through commitment. And the truth of the matter is, apart from courage, there is little faith and less obedience and precious few opportunities to impact anyone with whom we come in contact. Paul writes to young Timothy and says, God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Thirdly and finally, I would like for us to pay close attention to this last little test or exercise that the Lord uses in order to reduce the size of that army of liberation from 10,000 down to 300. He tells Gideon to take the men down to the spring at Herod on June, January 21st. Tita and I stood at that spring. I'd never been there before. I guess I've been to Israel seven or eight times, but I'd never been to Herod Spring. It is a beautiful site and a park. Water is clear as air. You can see to the bottom. And I just imagine all of those troops coming for water there at the spring of Herod. That's not Herod like King Herod. It's Herod, H-A-R-O-D. Was this just an arbitrary thing? Or was there some meaning behind the mystery of how the men were to drink the water. Tita and I have been debating that even today. We have different understandings of what it meant to lap water, what it meant to kneel. Uh, maybe it, it's nonsensical. Maybe it's like flipping a coin or saying everybody who was born on a Friday morning come to one side. But I think there has to be something more significant to that. I think by the very way the men drank their water and met their own needs... They were indicating something of their single-mindedness. Their commitment to the mission they had been given more than anything else. Because a precious few of the men would lap water like a dog, whether they didn't say they kneeled down. Maybe they cupped it in their hand and lapped it from their hand. But the majority of the people got down on their hands and knees brought both hands up to their face to drink the water. If they did that, they had to lay their weapons aside. They weren't, there wasn't a state of constant preparedness and readiness to face the enemy. Now here again, I don't know if that's the reason behind the mystery here. Maybe it just is a matter of God reducing the numbers so much that they would have to recognize it was God who was giving them the victory. But at any rate, I think there's something to be said for single-mindedness. 
to being committed to the mission we've been given more than our personal needs or desires even. In Vesper services a few weeks ago, uh, Doug McLemore, our minister, former army chaplain, talked about the single-mindedness of Uriah. If you remember that story, Uriah was an officer in King David's army. He was the husband of Bathsheba that King David had observed while she was bathing and fell, if not in love with her, fell in lust with her, brought her over to the palace, had his way with her, and then months later discovers that she's carrying his child. So in order to cover his sin, King David sends for Uriah to come home from the battle, tries to get him liquored up (laughs) so that he'll go home and sleep with his wife. And when it becomes known that she is pregnant, people will assume that, oh, it was Uriah's child when he was home visiting. What David didn't count on was Uriah's commitment to his men and to his mission. He refused to go home and told the king, how can I enjoy the pleasures of my home while my men are still camping in tents and fighting the enemy? And so, again, David made a poor decision. He ordered the commander-in-chief to put Uriah in the front of the battle so that he would surely be killed. And he was. And David thought his sin was covered. But the Lord knew. And the Lord dealt with David. Single-mindedness. This prompts me to ask of us, how committed are we to the mission of Jesus Christ That's why God calls us into his service, not so that he can simply bless us, so that he can use us. The Danish theologian and philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, purity of heart is to will one thing. What do you want more than anything else? Who do you serve more than anyone else? Is it the mission the Lord Jesus Christ has given to you? And to me, where on the scale of values in your home falls the place of the church? I think that's one of the things we have to ask this congregation. One of the things we intend to do during our block party revival. How serious are we about our churchmanship, about our relationship to the Lord? And how each of us can be involved somehow in the life and work and witness of this congregation. We are a small band, you might say, less than 3,000 people. We're less than the numbers we say we have on our roll, much less. You and I know that a large majority of the membership of this church aren't present in worship today. They weren't in Sunday school this morning. They don't fill out a pledge commitment. Is that an army? What is our commitment level? And how do you measure it? I don't know how you would measure it beyond seeing what a person does with the time they have, with the talents God has endowed them with, with the resources that have been entrusted to them. It's hard to be an army if nothing is expected or required of you. So friends, we are an army. That's what we've been recruited to be. And I can assure you, the world around this church needs what we can provide. We have tremendous resources, if we wisely use them, in terms of people, 
possessions, talents, abilities, wisdom, education, connections. It's amazing. There's still battles for us to face in our time. And like any other army, we may be tempted at times to worry more about our wages than our work, to be more interested in our rations than in our armor, to be more concerned about our survival than our effectiveness. And yet those whom God calls into his service, he equips for that work as he did Gideon. It is my prayer for us as individuals and as a community of faith that we too will be found faithful and effective in the mission that Jesus has given to this congregation. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.